How's everybody doing today? Good, good. It's, all, it's good to see you all here today. Like my wife said, that is my lovely wife. My name is Gino Allison, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church, especially on this lovely Friends and Family Day. Special welcome to all of our guests that are visiting with us today. Some of you are familiar faces, and others of you I've seen for the very first time today. So welcome. Looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better after service. Also, special welcome to anybody who's listening to us through our website or through our podcast. We have the ability to track now how many downloads we get and how many people are listening. So we know that people are out there listening to these messages. And we also welcome you to come and worship with us here on Sunday morning. Before I begin this morning, I just want to say a special thank you to Justin Law, who's here from the River Heights Vineyard. He has been very uh, instrumental in putting together the conference that we had this weekend, which is just an awesome time of worship. We had workshops, fellowship with other vineyard churches from the Chicagoland area. We even had some folks from Wisconsin come. It was just a powerful time. And Justin is our guest worship leader this morning. So we just want to say thank you to you. Thank you also to all the fine vineyard folks who served this weekend. We could not have done it without you. All weekend long, people were coming up to me and saying, hey, man, your people are great. They're so welcoming. They're so accommodating. So thanks to every single person who showed up to serve in this, uh, in this conference. People were blessed. And I believe that you were blessed as well. Well, some of you know me, and some of you know my story. That I grew up on the south side of Chicago, went to Dunbar High School. And in 1999, I graduated from Dunbar High School. And I was more than eager to move away uh, to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. It wasn't that I was just sort of ready to go and sow some oats, you know. But I was just ready to be on my own, sort of make my own decisions, to discover the world for myself. So I went off to school. I didn't really get homesick, but I was eager to come home and to visit my parents. So one day, uh, I, I hitched a ride with my roommate, and I was going to, you know, come home for a surprise visit. So, of course, I had a key. So late one night, uh, I think it was a Friday night, I opened the door, and I came home. And I guess my father heard some stirring and didn't know what was happening. So he peeks out of his room with that, you know, action face, you know, like he's going to have to take care of somebody. And I just remember, I'll never forget how his face changed when he saw me, when he saw it was me. He wasn't expecting me, and I just, I will never forget how his face just sort of lit up when he saw me. And he just came and gave me a hug, and I could hear my mom in the room saying, well, who is that? You know, who's that? And when, she told, when he told him it was me, uh, she just lit up and came out and hugged me as well. And my dad just wanted to talk. He was eager to talk. I was kind of sleepy. My mom was trying to fix me some food, and my bed was ready for me. It just all those things all together communicated a couple of things to me, that they were glad to see me that um, they wanted me to stay a while and that I was welcome at home, that they were glad that I was there and that I was welcome at home. And I never forget each and every time, each and every time that I came home to visit, they felt the same way, that they were glad to see me, that I was welcome there. And I think that's how you're supposed to feel, no matter who you are, when you walk into a place like this. When you walk into a place where God's family is assembled, when you walk into God's house where his presence dwell, where people from presumably every different place and station and walk of life have gathered to worship the Lord, you ought to feel like I felt when I walked in at home and my mom was trying to cook me some dinner and everybody was trying to get my attention and just trying to love on me and just hear my story and just let me know that I was welcome. You ought to feel that way when you come into the house of God. Listen, I made it my business to make you feel that way when you walk in here, to make sure our leaders have a welcome disposition because this is God's house. This is his family. 
This is his kingdom. No matter who you are, you ought to be welcome here. Doesn't matter what skin color you are. Doesn't matter your family heritage. Doesn't matter whether or not you have disabilities. Doesn't matter whether you're atheist or agnostic, whether you're single, married, divorced, or shacked up. Doesn't matter. I don't care what you've been doing last night. You ought to feel welcome in the house of God. Now, we're going to speak to some things. We're going to deal with some issues. We're going to put the mirror of God's word in front of you so you can see the real you. But you ought to feel welcome in the house of God. Whatever you are, whoever you are, you ought to feel welcome. Because God's house is home for humanity. God's house is home for humanity. I may not feel like home because of what you've been up to. It may not feel like home because of some of the rejection you might have experienced. It may not feel like home because of some of the stories that you might have heard, but needless to say, it's home. Because I found that home is not where you are, home is where you should be. Home's not where you are, but home is actually where you should be. Just because you've been away for a long time doesn't mean that the, the family of God is not your home. Doesn't mean that God isn't welcoming you, waiting for you to come home. Just because you got mad and somebody hurt you and you left and you stayed away for a long time doesn't mean that this place is not your home. And some people are apprehensive about coming to church. Some of you, when you got the invitation to come to family and friends that you gave it a second look, you thought, maybe, maybe I'll come, but will I be welcome? Will they look at me funny? Will I be dressed appropriately? Will they know my story? Do I have to cover up my tattoos? Do I have to take out my piercings? Got to pull up my pants? Will I be welcome there? Well, today I just want to preach a simple message that's called, uh, you can always come home. You can always come home. And home is not specifically the South Suburban Vineyard per se. We would love that more people would make it their home. But the home is not specifically South Suburban Vineyard Church, but home it's God's family, God's house, and this is God's house, and you can always come. You can always come home. Today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, a very familiar story. In Luke chapter 15, if you don't have Bibles with you, by the way, there are Bibles on the edges of each row. You're more than welcome to pick up one of those Bibles. If you don't, by the way, have a Bible of your own, you're more than welcome to take that as a gift from us. If you've gotten the habit of collecting our Bibles, you can just slowly start to bring those back to us. Because we're missing a few, and we know who you are. But this, the words will also be projected on the screen. I see some of my lovely family snuck away to be with us this morning. God bless you guys. Um, but let me pray before I start this morning. Luke chapter 15. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for this church. We thank you so much for these uh, fine folks who have gathered here this morning, Lord. We thank you even, Lord, that there's representation here from many different congregations, Lord, on our Friends and Family Day. We thank you for that as well. Lord, we thank you that we get the opportunity to worship you publicly without fear of being rounded up like some of our brothers and sisters across the world. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in your name and worship you and worship only you. Lord, would you illuminate the scriptures today? Would you show us your heart for us, Lord? Would you put power on these words that you've given me to speak, Lord? Would you move the preacher out of the way this morning? Get me out of the way so that your truth and that your light can shine through. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 15. 
Luke chapter 15 opens with Jesus having more problems with the Pharisees. What's new, right? More problem with the religious Pharisees, right? I just call them church folks. Church folks will run you down, won't they? They will give you gray hairs. And here Jesus is having yet another run-in with church folks. Really the only people who ever gave Jesus problems. In the beginning of this chapter, we see exactly what their problem is with Jesus. Verse 1 says, the tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. But they had a problem with Jesus rubbing shoulders. They had a problem with him hanging out with, uh, with the scoundrels, with the roughnecks, with the people who had bad reputations. They had a problem with Jesus hanging out with them. And I'm so glad that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit because I would have dealt with these guys a little bit differently. I would have said, maybe, hey, listen, maybe they didn't tell you, dude, but I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm, a, I'm a big deal. I'm the savior of the world. So cut me some slack. I know what I'm doing. Or maybe said something else, sarcastic, and dismissed them. But Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, a master teacher, he does something perhaps a little bit more constructive, a little more godly. He does what he does best. He tells them a story. He not only tells them a story, he tells them a series of stories. He first starts with the parable of the lost sheep. He says, as his duty, he has 100 sheep. One sheep gets lost, and he leaves the 99 sheep to go and search of that one sheep. Apparently, that's a common practice among shepherds. And not only does he bring the sheep back, but he carries it on his shoulders back to the flock, and he throws a party with his friends because this lost sheep is found. And Jesus said in, in verse 7, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Jesus says there's more joy in heaven. He tells another quick story, another parable to help him understand. He says this is a woman who has 10 silver coins, and unfortunately she loses one. Jesus says, won't she light a lamp and tear up the whole house until she finds that one coin? Not only that, once she finds that one coin, she's going to throw a party with her friends because she's celebrating that she's found that lost coin. Jesus says in verse 10, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. And Jesus is trying to explain to these guys who are so quarrelsome. And always have questions about what Jesus is doing. Always have questions about what he's up to. Why he chooses to associate with people who need him the most. They have questions about that. So Jesus tells them this story. And maybe Jesus is thinking that these religious folks were maybe a little too white collar to understand the story about lowly shepherds. And maybe he says they're just a little too wealthy to understand the value of a single coin given their uh, likely wealth. So he tells them a story that they can all identify with. He talks to them about their kids. He talks to them about their kids. And not just their kids, because we're living in a, a male-dominated society. Well, male children, male offspring are valued much higher than women offspring, than female offspring. He tells them a story about their sons. These guys, gonna, this story is going to connect with them. This is about their sons. This is about their offsprings. So he tells the story of not just a son, but a lost son. Sons were to carry on the family name. Sons would inherit the family property, continue the family business. The sons would bring honor and pride to the family name. So a lost son, a wayward son, might pique these guys' interest. So Jesus starts in on this story about a lost son, and we pick up in verse 11. 
To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money had ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and I will say, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. So the party began. And like many of the stories, in fact, all of the stories that Jesus told, not only are they interesting stories, but they are absolutely great stories. Full of truth and full of life, full of wisdom and insight. And this is a really great story. And this story, particularly the section that we read, has two very important, very significant characters, the son and the father. The son and the father. And these two characters in this story represent us and God. The son represents humanity and all of his depravity and all of his sinfulness and all of its selfishness, and all of its waywardness and uh, wandering, the son represents us. And of course, the father in the story represents our heavenly father and all of his goodness and all of his love and all of his wisdom represents the father. And not only is this a cool story with two characters, it's a cool story of extremes. And Jesus often painted pictures with broad strokes. He often talked about the extremes to make his points. And this is a story of two extremes. It's a story of the extremes of human depravity. Our extreme desire to wander off. And as Jesus tells this story, he tells it as as if this young man has, has gone to the edge of depravity. The story that Jesus told would have been shocking to his hearers because the thing that this young man did was so unthinkable in that culture. It's also a story of extremes as it relates to the Father, our Heavenly Father. Extremes of God's love. The extremes that he'll go to to reel us back in. The extremes that he'll go to to make us feel welcome again. And help us know that we can always, always, always come home. And as this story opens, we see it begin with an audacious request. An audacious request. Verse 11b says, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. Now we hear that in modern day 
Flossmore, Illinois, and we think this kid, snotty kid, what a jerk. And that's, that's, that's just disrespectful. That's how we would think of it. But if you can imagine this Jewish male audience listening to this that understands the value of respect towards one's elders, much less uh, respect towards one's father, a gasp probably went through the crowd as Jesus told this story of a young man to be so bold and so brazen and so irreverent as to demand his inheritance before his father died. This isn't a guy, a kid coming to ask for a few bucks for some popcorn for the movies. This isn't a guy that's asking his father for help with a down payment on a vehicle. This is essentially a boy that says, listen, Dad, you're taking too long to die. I wish you were dead already because I want to get, a ha- I want to get my hands on that money. All of a sudden, it takes on a different meaning, doesn't it? Taking too long to die. It's irreverent. It's disrespectful. It's a slap in his father's face. But as we see, the father agreed to divide his wealth. And for the first time, I've read this passage a number of times, preached on it several times, heard sermons expounded on it for many, many, uh, many, many times. But the first time I saw that, here's this guy dividing his wealth among his sons before he's died. Can you imagine what that might have done to his net worth? This guy still has to live. He still has to, you know, take care of his land. Imagine how this diminishes his net worth to give his son his inheritance. Perhaps half of it before he's even expired. Again, it's a story of extremes. God's extreme love and his sacrificial nature. If for all the only reason to teach this boy a lesson. So we see this audacious request. And next we move to the section of the story where you see this young man. He sets off on his own. He sets off on his own. And to set off on your own is the essence of what it means to be lost. The essence of what it means to be lost, flying solo. The essence of sin, friends, is not the dirty deeds that we do behind closed doors. It's not the dirty deeds that we do uh, when the lights are dark, or what we do behind the doors with a few locks on them, or the secrets that we haven't told anybody. That's not the essence of sin. Sure, that's sin, but that's not the essence of sin. The essence of sin begins when we feel like our own plans are sufficient. When we feel like our best thinking and our best reasoning will do the trick. And many nice people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they've been mean to others? No. They've been fantastic neighbors. Because they've not been generous? No. They've been plenty generous. They will not inherit the kingdom simply because they thought that they can do life on their own. That they can live this life and walk on God's earth without the benefit of his care without consulting him about their decisions, without submitting their financial decisions, their sexuality to him. Many people will not inherit the kingdom of God simply because they're doing, they've done what this young man has done. They've set out on their own, to live life on their own, to do their own thing. When you're thoroughly convinced that your own plans can do it for you. The essence of sin. Because it's that thinking that gives way to the actions. It's that thinking that gives way to the things that you do behind closed doors and the things that you do in secret and the, the places that you go under the cover of an alias online. It's those things. It's the essence of sin that gives way to those things. Going out on your own 
And listen, let me tell you something. It's hard. It's hard to stay connected to God. It's, it's hard to have a great life. It's hard to stay sin free when you're connected to God. I wonder how you fare when you when you go off on your own. This is the preacher talking. I'm a preacher, a pastor. I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to be saved. I don't believe that, by the way. I know that's what you think. It's easy for you to say you get paid to be saved. It's not true at all. But it's a reality, man. I used to think, oh, when I first became a pastor, okay, pastor, when do I get my wings? Like, when do I not, you know, when I'm not distracted by a beautiful woman? When am I not lured by, you know, selfish ambition? When does that kick in? I'm a preacher now. They gave me a certificate. I never came. They must have sent it to my other address. Somebody else must have got my wings. Doesn't come in that color. Hard enough. Stay focused. When you're connected to Jesus, when you're connected to the community of faith, when you're walking this life out with other people, when you're in community, you're being accountable. Come here and you worship the Lord. You're sacrificial what you're giving. It's hard enough, even then. Not to speak of wandering off on your own. He sets off on his own. He doesn't stand a chance. This young man finds himself out on his own. Verse 13, a few days later, this young son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and began to starve. He's persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. This young man, he went away out on his own. And I'm sure he had grand ideas. He had, a, he had, he had planned out how he was going to spend this money. As my father would say, his money was burning a hole in his pocket. He's got to spend it. And he thought about the women that he'd be able to attract with his money. He thought about the stuff he'd be able to get. Thought about the fun that he would have. And I'm sure he attracted many women. I'm sure as he walked down the streets, as the change, you know, rattled in his pocket, you know, he, he became very famous. He acquired a lot of friends. But soon what happened, he wasted his money on fun, temporary friends and, and women. He didn't go out to buy land or invest it in something meaningful. Rather, he squandered it. He proved that he wasn't ready for that type of investment. He proved unworthy to make his own decisions. And call his own shots. He found himself penniless. He found himself jobless. He found himself homeless. Verse 15 said he persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding looked good to him. But no one gave him to eat. Now when we hear this part of the story, we go, that's gross. Pigs, that's a dirty job. You know, Mike Rowe would get excited about that. He would want to do a story on that. That's a dirty job for the pigs. But remember that we're talking about Orthodox Jews that wouldn't even eat pig that was deliciously prepared. They weren't even supposed to touch these things. We're supposed to go near them. So a second gasp must go through this crowd as Jesus tells the story. Jesus is a master storyteller. He's a professor of life, right? 
So he knows exactly what will rattle these guys' chains, exactly what will show them the depth of this young man's depravity, how far he's gone. I told you, it's a story of extremes. He says this guy gets a job. The only job he can land is feeding pigs. He's so hungry. He's so destitute that even the stuff that he's feeding the pigs starts to look delicious to him. How hungry do you have to be? How out there do you have to be? Even the stuff he's feeding the pigs starts to look scrumptious to him. This boy is lost. He's out there. And he didn't just get that way when he got broke. He's been that way ever, ever since he started to put his speech together and figure out what the good time is to approach his dad, to insult him, and ask for his inheritance. This boy's been lost for a long time, long before he left home. And his turning point happens where he realized that he was lost. He realized that he was lost. He reached a very important turning point. Turning point. Verse 17 says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am lying, I'm sorry, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. Am I no longer worthy of being called your son? Please take me on as a hired servant. His son is lost. He's truly lost because he knows he's lost. And this part has to happen. We talk about salvation. We talk about being welcomed home. We talk about all the goodness and wonder that the Father has for us. But there has to be this turning point. Without this turning point, nothing happens. The turning point happens for this young man when he realizes that he's lost. And I've seen this over and over and over in people's lives. Where people are in this same predicament, they're, they're broken, they're, they're in the dumps, they've hit rock bottom. And that's the perfect time. I've been ministering to people for years. I've been trying to get them to come to church for years. I've been and giving them invite cards and inviting them to stop, and they're just like, no, preacher, uh, not this time. Oh, they say, yeah, I'll be there. We've all heard that. I'll be there, yeah, I'll be there. Sunday after Sunday. But I tell you, when a person hits rock bottom, person realized the degree that they've been lost and the fact that all the stuff that they trusted in has no longer even has is an option anymore and all of a sudden God can do what he does best and all of a sudden their eyes are open they can see what everybody else has seen for years that they're lost that they're in need of something larger than themselves and this is what happens to this lost boy this is what happens before salvation before being found let me tell you friends those of you that would count yourself among the lost today, you've got to be able to say, I'm lost. You've got to be able to say, I am lost. You've got to be able to say, to some degree, I need something other than myself. I can't pull myself out of this hole. I can't read another self-help book. I can't try another scheme to get myself out of this. I am lost, and I need a Savior. So this boy starts to head home. The million-dollar question is, how did he know that his father would welcome him home? As foolish as he's been, as far as he's straight, how did he know? What convinced this boy to think of home? He left in a bogus way. He was out of line. He burned every bridge, and he burned it pretty good. How did he know? I'll tell you how he probably knew. His father probably told him often and early, so no matter what you do, you can always come home. 
No matter how bad you screwed up, you can always come home. Might have even told him on the way out the door with a bag of coins. You can always come back, son. You don't have to go, boy. Daddy loves you, son. You can always come back. And so when he came to himself, those words washed over him. And he said, listen, listen, my dad, would, he, he would easily take me in as a servant. He would even take me in as a servant. He even prepared a speech to give to his father. A good sounding speech. And surely his father will relent and take him home. And we progress to the part where the boy is finally welcomed home. Verse 20, so he returned home. Say he returned to his father's house. He returned home where he should have been, to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Instead, he saw him from afar off. And if you look earlier, look back to earlier in the passage, the son had prepared a longer speech than his father let him get out. Father wasn't interested in this speech. Father was at the door waiting for this boy to come back home. I imagine that every day, if not every other day or so, the father would just go and peek out and stand there. And I wonder if the neighbors might have thought, well, what is up with him, man? See, what is he We're expecting? A package. No, he's looking for his boy. He's looking for his boy to come home. He's looking for his boy to come home. He says he saw him far off, which means he was looking for him. Listen, this is his father. They probably recognized the gait with which he walked. Probably recognized his silhouette. He probably said, those are my son's shoulders. That's my, that's my boy's big ears I see coming up the road. And it says he ran to him. Now this, this again, Jewish men didn't run. It was very undignified. They didn't do that. What's the hurry? I'm important. I'll wait till you get here. But again, Jesus is ringing every single bell with this Jewish audience that he's talking to. He runs to his son. He runs to his son, kisses him. Kisses him on the neck. Son starts to talk to his speech and the father cuts him off. Verse 22, but his father said to his servants, quick. Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but he is now found. So the party began. So the party began. So what's the point? Jesus is saying, listen, this is my boy. He come home. You want to know why I hang out with the sinners? You want to know why I hang out with the folks who have terrible reputations? You want to know why I hang out with guys like Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Why I let immoral women be in my company? Do you know why I'm hanging out at the wells? Because these, this is how much the Father loves those that are lost. This is how much he's dying to welcome those who are lost. Jesus says, it's the sick that need a doctor. I'm the great physician, right? I just, my, one of my goals in life and one of my goals in preaching is just to shatter this, this notion that you have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. How silly is that? That's just like saying, I need a bath. Let me take a shower, get this dirt off of me before I go and take a bath. Or I'm really sick, let me get myself well first and then I'll go into the doctor. Jesus says it's the sick that need a doctor. 
It's the lost that need to be found. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So if I'm the gate, then the gate has to go to the lost. And guess who we are, folks? We're the hands and the feet of Jesus. And since we're the hands and the feet of Jesus, and since we do business in God's house, guess what? This has to be a place of a radical welcome. Where a person who's come off the street, no place else in town will have you. They ought to say, they'll take you over to the vineyard. If every other place turns you away, and every other place is looking for a background check, and they're looking for a few references, they ought to say that you can go over to the vineyard, and those people will treat you like family. If you're hungry, they'll buy you a sandwich. If you're ashamed, they'll treat you like a brother. Because this is God's house. And this is home for not just those of us who sign the role and become members. This is home for those who need Jesus. Part of our mission and our vision and our values is to be a place where those that don't know Jesus can come and find him. And for those who already know him, can know him more in a deeper and an abiding way. So my message to you is, listen, I don't care where you are today. I don't care where you are on the spectrum of sin and salvation. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've been up to. I don't care what they said over there. Jesus welcomes you home. You have a place in his family. It's not about shaking the preacher's hand or signing the membership role. It's about being at peace with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't promise us a perfect life where all our bills will be paid and there will be no aches and pains in our body and we won't have relational brokers. And Jesus doesn't promise that, but he promises this connection to him which sustains us in the times where life is rough. Sustains us in those moments where life is unbearable. He gives us people to walk shoulder to shoulder with. So if you're lost today, worship team, you can come up. If you're lost today, I'm just, I'm just here to tell you, you can come home. The Father lavishly pours his love upon you. He says to you, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, wherever you've been pushed away and wherever you've been rejected, however long you've stayed away, we don't come to condemn you today. We come to open our arms and say, welcome to the family of God. And some of you feel uncomfortable here. Not because you don't like us, because this place represents something that's intimidating to you. I just want to say that that's not the God we serve. We serve a God that loves you and that says, come home. So I want to challenge you for those of you who've wandered away and have stayed away. And some of you who even come regularly to the church, but in your heart, you're far away. I'm going to challenge you. Don't stay there. I don't believe in coincidences. It's no coincidence that you're here today, that you're listening to this, that you're receiving what God has to say. There's no coincidence, friends. The Lord welcomes you. He's calling you. He's challenging you to press in and to come home because you can always, always, always come home. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you so much for your radical welcome. I thank you so much, Lord, that no matter what we've done or where we stand or who we've wronged, you still welcome us home. Lord, though we may walk through the marketplace and get all sorts of funny and strange looks, our family may turn their back on us, Lord, but there's always a place with you. So, Lord, I lift up those who would find themselves, would count themselves among the lost this morning. 
And I ask, Lord, that you would just shower them with your radical welcome. That as we worship today, the, the shalom of your presence, the peace of your presence would just wash over them, Lord. And you would make them feel welcome here. But by the power of your spirit, would you convict every heart that's far from you? Would you draw them in with a love that only comes from you? May you move them to action, move them forward as they press in closer, nearer to you. Would every eye just be closed right now? And I'm just going to do something that I, that I never do. And please, every eye closed. This isn't to embarrass you. We're not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. But if you would just count yourself among the lost this morning and realize that there's too much space between you and the Lord and you just recognize that that's you, nobody's watching you, would you just, would you just slip your hand in the air? There's one. Lord, would you just float over these people as we worship you? Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus.